If you're a history buff or maybe just a lover of art history, you can see these kinds of things down at the Art Institute, you might be familiar with a style of art that was very popular, especially in the Renaissance, but really throughout all of history. And it's a style or a genre known as a memento mori. Memento mori which simply means a, a memory of mortality or a memory of death. And they would have these ironic sorts of pictures. So one example might be a painting of a, a beautiful young girl, a beautiful young woman in a, in a gown and jewelry, and then her hand sort of delicately resting on a human skull, something like that. You just look at it and it's sort of jarring. Why would you juxtapose these two images? youth and beauty and health and this sign of our mortality. But as I say, it was a genre or a style that was really quite popular, and it wasn't seen as macabre or bizarre or morose. It was just a very natural sort of embracing of a reality that was inescapable, a reality of what life looked like in all its manifestations. Now, jump ahead to the 20th century. Some of you might be familiar with the British philosopher and novelist Iris Murdoch. Wonderful writer. I'd recommend any of her books. One of her novels has as its title, Memento Mori. And the plot basically is this. It's set in a small English village. And one day, all of the more elderly residents in the village start getting this unusual phone call. The phone rings, they pick up the phone, and there's this kind of quiet voice on the other side, and it simply says, remember, you must die. Click. Phone goes down. Now, if that's not a teaser, I don't know what is. You all can read the book. All right, we'll just file that away. In our homily series, our Grow series uh, for tonight, obviously the readings all about salt of the earth, light of the world, and we're being encouraged to say, well, how can I be light, or where can I be light, where can I be salt, what action can I take up, I want to be salty, I want to be bright. Well, I'd like to make a suggestion. I'd like you to take your phone, and don't have to do it right now, but take your phone and just think of somebody you know and love very well, and simply text them this message, remember, you must die. And you can stick on a smiley emoji. That's perfectly fine. <laughs> because I'd like to suggest, if you really want to be the salt of the earth, that's a message that's about as close to the Christian spiritual life as you're going to find. Now, before you all decide on being my usual morose self, which I proudly own, just stick with me for a minute. I got to thinking myself, well, how does salt actually work? And you might be surprised to know that we don't understand it all that well. We know how salty blends with sweet and sour and the other things. We know how those go together or don't. But how salt actually affects our taste buds, believe it or not, is still something that's being studied and is not fully understood. But somehow, salt, sodium, chloride, it affects our little taste buds and it makes them more receptive. Right? As we all know, salt sort of enhances the flavors that are already there. You pour chocolate sauce on something and it tastes like chocolate. You pour salt on something, it might be salty, but somehow the natural flavor is enhanced. 
And I'm not suggesting that Jesus was giving us a biochemistry lesson. But they knew, they weren't idiots, they knew that salt had this enhancing quality. So when he talks about being salt of the earth, I've got to imagine what he had in mind is that somehow he's inviting us, challenging us, goading us into interacting with others such that his central message might be more readily received. So how do you do that? Well, if you're like me, I hear salt, I hear light, I think of, okay, what's a good act I can do? What would Jesus do? Who's someone that I can help that I wouldn't have helped anyways? Salt, light, and there's nothing wrong with that. But at the end of the day, I think we know that those kinds of actions, as wonderful as they are, sometimes come up short in the face of real hardships. I alluded to last week, if you went to this Mass, family that I'm working with right now that very much is struggling, very much is struggling to see light and salt in their Christian faith. And they were born and raised Catholic, you know, they know all the prayers, but they don't necessarily want to hear about light and salt because somehow all of that has lost its illuminating power, its flavor-enhancing ability. When the stuff hits the fan, Simple acts of kindness don't always necessarily break through the darkness. So is that all Jesus meant? Did he mean just try a little bit harder, you know, put a bigger smile on your face, and then you'll be salt, and then you'll be light? When we hear the gospel, as always when we hear the gospel, we're seeing people listening to Jesus, interacting with him, without their having what we have without their having the Paschal mystery, right? Before really knowing that Jesus' death is not the end of the story, but there's a transformation and there's new life that can come. We maybe take that for granted. They didn't even know it. And so consequently, they knew what it felt like at times to be in the face of something that all the salt in the world seemingly couldn't help. Think of Martha and Mary when Lazarus dies. They ain't talking about salt and light. When Jesus first shows up, they're talking about how despairing they are and why didn't he get there sooner. So who does see things from our perspective? Well, again, in the glory of our church, one of the beauties of our liturgy is that we always or almost always get a voice from our side of things, and that voice is usually Paul. And once again, Paul comes through tonight. Because if we just look at him through the lens of this light and salt business, he gives us a way. He gives us a way of actually helping to let other hearts be receptive, the way salt helps our little taste buds be receptive to flavor. And what he talks about, and you may not like the answer, and I may not like the answer, but Paul talks about it ad nauseum. And I wish we did a better job with little kids when we're teaching them about the faith. And we sing songs about salt and light and happy pictures of Jesus with salt shakers. There's nothing wrong with any of that. But what does Paul zero in on? He zeroes in on the cross. He says, when I came to you, and he's writing to this little church in Corinth. He could be writing to St. Joe's or any other parish that you know. He says, when I came to you, I didn't rely on my eloquence. And Paul was an eloquent guy. He said, I didn't come to you with a lot of flash and show, maybe a cheap understanding of what salt and light could be. 
He said, I didn't want you to be dazzled by that stuff. I'm paraphrasing, but that's basically what he says. He says, when I came, I wanted to know only one thing. I wanted to know Jesus Christ and him crucified. I didn't want all my human eloquence to get in the way of the central message that Jesus brings, the message of the cross. And of course, he doesn't just mean death, brokenness on a cross. That's a lot of times where our humanity stops. He meant the whole picture, and he certainly talks about the whole picture, the fact that we're not defined by the brokenness of the cross. We're not defined by those moments when our salt seemingly loses its ability to enhance flavor. We're not defined by those times when the brightness of our flame maybe seems to flicker and be ever so close to going out. And Paul is saying, I know those moments are going to come, but that's not the end of the story. So what I want you to know about is the Christ that I met when I got knocked on my butt on the road to Damascus and I found myself with flavorless salt and brightless light as he's literally rendered blind, right? We know the story. And he's got to sit in that place while the transformation is going on and the vulnerability has to come out, just sort of slowly leak out through all his armor and all his greatness as an army leader and all the rest of it. And in that state, he becomes open and receptive Paul knew what it meant to be rendered receptive by, in, and through the cross of Christ. And I think there's a reason why you can scan Paul's letters till the cows come home and you won't find him talking about salt. But you will see him talking about the cross again and again. And I believe that sooner or later, if someone ever put in his hands the text of one of these Gospels, and he was reading through it, and eventually he got to be the salt of the earth, he would get it in a heartbeat. He would know exactly what that means. He would know what it means for salt, if it's just our human efforts, to ultimately lose its power. And he would understand what it means to be in Christ such that we enhance the receiving ability of a human heart. So I have nothing but the greatest respect for our marching orders this week. Be salt for someone else. Be light in the world. Decide where you're going to do it. Decide who the person is that you're going to reach out to. But I want us to take Paul very seriously. If you do a good deed, if you, you send a nice note or whatever, by all means do that. But do it with the sensibility of saying, how am I meeting this person in their own personal cross? How am I meeting them perhaps in the suffering they may be wrestling with? Maybe it's very obvious in public, maybe it's very subtle, and only you as a good friend know it. But don't shirk that cross just because it's unpleasant. Don't look away. Because at the end of the day, of course, it's not the end of the road. It's the way into real transformation. It's the way into letting the salt open up our hearts to receive even more fully the power and the glory of the Christian message. Be the salt of the earth, be the light of the world, but let it enter into the people you love through their cross.